Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, everyone. Uh, And today, your midweek editors are myself, Liz Lumley, and our special guest, my good friend, Roberta Robbie Profeta, who is known in the industry as the prophet of fintech. Hello, Robbie. How are you? Hello, Liz. I am absolutely fine and so thrilled to be on the podcast with you. Thank you so much. Now, we all know that you are an ex-banker and you are currently a consultant. Give our audience kind of a quick short bio of who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I've been 25 years a banker. That's quite a lot. Um, And last year I moved to consulting here in beautiful Switzerland for Elka Group. And I established the financial services consulting. Um, Actually, it's a financial services advisory here in Elka Group. And uh, we work with the Swiss banks. So as our listeners know, the Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on the Banker site and newsy bits that will influence future stories. So we're going to start off with a Banker story, and it's about everyone's favorite topic of 2023, which is interest rates. (laughs) So this is a story that was written by our European editor, Anita Hauser, looking at how are rising interest rates affecting banks. Um, And it seems like despite the high profile um, collapse of banks in the U.S. and some in Europe, um, the rising interest rates are not the main cause of banking failures, and they are not really affecting but they are actually a boon for banks' balance sheets. And I know there's a lot of talk, especially in the UK, around why aren't these high interest rates uh, being passed on to consumers in the form of savings accounts. And there is an editorial in the FT as well talking about why it is dangerous to assume that banks are profiteering from this, um, which is kind of a – I think we'll get into sort of the complicated nature of how, how banks – Operate. What do you What do you think of this? Uh, we had low interest rates for so so long, and now twenty twenty three is their their sky high. How do you think this is going to impact banks and and consumers widely? Let's say that the interest rates there are a consequence of what has happened, right? Um, mm. COVID and everything that's going on. Yeah, exactly. COVID and everything that's going on and the invasion, so on and so forth. Um, so inflation was um, was rising and the central banks decided to rise the interest rates because they needed to, to tackle the inflation aspect of everything, right? And I'm well aware that uh, Andrew Bailey, the BOE governor, he urged bank- banks to also be generous towards savers, right? Saying you've increased the the interest rate, so you mm-hmm. have to pass it on to the deposits. But it's so interesting. He, yeah, it's, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's, it's go kind ahead. of because I've heard this so often. I mean, I, I, it has been announced, and I think I, I was on the BBC a couple of months ago talking about this, about why banks are making all these profits from the rise in interest rates from you know mortgages and loans, but they don't seem to be passing it on to the savers. But according to the editorial in the FT, the mm-hmm. the sort of long-term average for, I mean, the the rates that banks pass on to consumers is always going to be lower than they charge that because that's how banks make money, um, is, is kind of roughly the same long-term average it's always been. So like, where is this, is, is this, is this the idea of kind of perception versus raw numbers? I mean, why, why is this, 
why why is this sort of why do you think there's this bit of debate and drama over this well you know for the for the lay people it, mm. it's 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 the it's automatic right if i have to pay more for mm. a loan why don't you give me more for my deposit mm. whereas actually it's not as you all know it's not that straightforward right because even for banks themselves things become more complica complicated because in turn it's more expensive for them to borrow money and also what happens is that the counterparties they lend money to clearly are in a different situation compared mm. to before mm. the assets of the counterparties who have borrow the money uh have um they decrease in value mm -hmm. because of the mechanisms so actually it's it's an entire mechanism which is more complex and articulated that one what we can actually see at a first glance it's not that easy and hence um the higher interest rates for the banks they don't necessarily equate to making more revenues because mm. they have to handle the uh, the different balance of all of the rest right they have increased cr uh, credit risk the assets have a uh, are devalued the collaterals whatever um they also have to yeah they have to, I already said that, they have mm. to also manage the increase, increased risk of default, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they themselves have to borrow the money from the market. So it's 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 less immediate. Mm. It's it's interesting. It's a, it, I think I read as well one of these stories that, I mean, my my mortgage is, is going up in, in December with fun times. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of the, the, the research and statistics are that People will be squeezed, but not many people will default. So we'll we'll see how that mm -hmm. pans out. Um, but yeah, but the squeeze is coming, and it's not fun, and it's not nice, and the public are not happy. <laughs> no, it isn't. Mm. But I read something else, which is interesting as well, that of course interest uh, rates going higher, etc., um, housing values in the market decrease. Mm -hmm. And I read this the other day, um, younger, the younger generation, they are in the position to, if they have savings, which is a huge if, mm. question mark, to actually purchase those houses. I'm not sure I align with that point of view, mm. but it was just an interesting additional um, input uh, I, I came across reading uh, an article the other day. Interesting. Well... One, one to watch is the uh, the drama of interest rates wrecks havoc on most of the globe. But I'm going to turn now to uh, everyone's favorite fintech subject, open banking. <laughs> so this was a, a report. So this ran today from um, our digital editor, Sam Friend. So NatWest in the UK commissioned a report looking at the UK's approach to open banking. And big surprise, it uh, has claimed that open banking has only seed, seen limited success. I think only about... Six to ten percent of the UK public um, population kind of uses um, open banking type services, um, and they're calling for more industry collaboration. And it's kind of interesting when open banking sort of first started being talked about around 2016, 2017. 
because of the PSD2, because of uh, uh, work from the Corp uh, Corporation and Markets Authority in the UK, I was on a panel with the CMA in the UK, and I said, I, I'm worried about this because banks, when they're mandated to do something, will do the absolute minimum they can possibly do to get away with so they don't get fined. Mm -hmm. And I was told by the CMA that they have very good lawyers. But there was an interesting quote um, in this article from Stephen Wright, head of regulation and standards, Bank of APIs at NatWest. He said, unless the regulator says to do something, nothing happens. So I think it's it's interesting, they, especially looking at how open banking is kind of works in the in the uh, rate regulator wary U.S., where it's where it's sort of um, market focused, and in the Europe and the U.K., it's more uh, mandate focused. What do you what do you think? Has open banking been a failure, or should we even look at it that way, or is this just a really long journey with with what's going on? Yeah. Well, you and I were. Uh discussing this back in the days in yeah. London when all of this was happening. Exactly. I was so excited. It was uh, PSD2, it was GDPR. Mm. I don't think it's a failure. I think we were expecting too much. Um, some of us were expecting too much. This is a huge revolution in the market, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it's been already quite a substantial step that has been taken. Let's not underestimate the implications. Um, of course, it is a, it is a long journey, and PSD three, for example, shows us that mm -hmm. you know we ha we have to go towards open finance, and if we're going to get there, it's going to be even better. Um, but I, I I doubt that you or I or many people we were talking to at the time would actually think that immediately you know it would it would have been used a lot, and also because there has been regulatory etc. Um, but what about the consumers? Mm -hmm. Have we informed the public well enough about it? Mm -hmm. Do they know what the opportunities are? Do you know? Do they know see, what yeah, they can do with it? See, this is it. When uh, this was again back in the day, the only real consumer communication I remember seeing was danger warning. You know, banks will have access to your. Mm -hmm. your information. I didn't see any of the, um, I, I didn't see any really sort of in, in the mainstream press, any informed writing about consent, about how, what, how this data will be used, how it could be beneficial to consumers. I saw absolutely none of that. And I think that's because it really wasn't in the bank's interest to do that because it's something they didn't really think was going to be a revolution or think was going to be a big deal. Do you think that? I agree with that, and I also think that neither did the regulatory bodies do much mm -hmm. about that. So, you know, I would have expected much more education around that. Yeah, it is an empowerment. You know, in in Europe, PSD two plus GDPR, and and in the UK, open banking, etc. We, in theory, are empowered to do more. Mm -hmm. But have we conveyed this well enough? And I personally think we have not. So, a revolution needs more education. A revolution needs more education. Absolutely. You heard it here first. Banking industry, it's your turn. <laughs> Need more. We will take, we will be taking courses. Um, so this this kind of goes, uh, the next story, and the reason why I, I brought it out, so this is going to be about the wildfires that have been raging across Canada and a story today from uh, Philippa Nuttall in the, on the banker site about Canadian banks um, still 
financing uh, fossil fuels. I know there's a lot of yeah. movement from uh, climate activists to try to get banks to at least sign saying they won't finance expansion of fossil fuel sites. And the reason why I brought this out is not not to be like a climate change denier, but to try and, try and point out how complicated this issue is. And I, I sometimes find it a little... I get slightly slightly cynical and slightly annoyed sometimes with with people who are who are rightfully you know trying to 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 educate the public more about changes in our climate and and, and things we can possibly do to re to reverse it and and the very simple notion that all banks need to do is stop financing fossil fuels without looking at the complications of that and the ramifications of that on other economies, I find a bit naive at times. And that, that's not to say that I think we should continue, you know, raping the planet. But um, I just, I, I do sometimes find it a bit annoying that, that this, this idea that it's just as simple as removing the money from oil fields will save the planet when it's a much more complicated situation than that. I mean, the, the Canadian banks actually made a statement saying, you know, climate change is a critical issue of our time and banks in Canada are committed to doing their part to address this. But they are also part of a, you know, very complicated financial system. So am, am I being am I being too cynical and too, too hard <laughs> on, on activists? What do you think? No, I, I, I think I think that you, you have a quite a well balanced um, view on it because of course we do have that urge to improve um, the ecosystem, our world, have a better impact, right? And we're all trying to do our best um, as individuals, and we also are as individuals pushing corporations, businesses, and banks and states in that same direction, mm. but. For you and I, for example, it's it's much easier to have a direct impact immediately because in our daily behavior, what we do is not articulate, as articulate, as complex and as difficult as, you know, other situations. So we all agree that we have to do something in that domain and avoid, you know, and improve. That's very much what we strongly believe in. Um to be able to do that entails effort, of course, commitment, of course, and time. Because to unpack certain certain com complex um, transactions or agreements or whatever, it takes time. But I think that it is important to highlight that it is not okay, mm. right? And that we are going towards another direction compared to where we used to be some time ago. Um, so, you know, I think RBC actually underlined the fact that there was a report, the annual report from Rainforest Action Network did not acknowledge the progress RBC was making 
in meeting their climate goals. So that means, you know, that there is there is an effort. So I think that your your view is very, very well balanced. Mm. So we have to do things, but we also have to 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 bear in mind and consider that it's not as easy as turning switch on and off. Yeah. Basically. Right. I mean also kind of a, a side issue from that outside of the the the, the climate change issue. I was talking to a, a think tank in Copenhagen the other week and, and we were talking about retail banking and I said, you know, you have to understand the the main point of banks, why they were created, were to finance things. Bridges, mm-hmm. you know, companies. They were like, Really? I'm yep. like, Yeah, it's like the, the current accounts were open so that they could get capital to finance things. Um, we are now in a very you know, a huge information age and consumers especially are becoming more aware of what their bank uses their money to finance, you know, and so I think we're going to move into an, uh, an era where, you know, I know there's, there's, there are companies that don't do business with tobacco companies, for example, or, um, you know, uh, uh, weapons and arms and, uh, you know, military. So I think we're going to enter a, a stage where consumers are going to be much, much more um, uh, interested to know what their bank is doing with their money and what they exactly yep. they're financing. So it'll see how that might... Um, might impact consumer choice in the future. Hmm. All right, so we are now moving off the banker site. I know it's very hard, people, but this is a story that we are we are working on, um, which is uh, over in the, the U.S. So the U.S. is about to launch on January twentieth, uh, Fed Now, which is their foray into official real time payments. Uh, the U.S. has. Other sort of real-time payment options, uh, commercial options from uh, companies like Vemno, uh, the the clearinghouse has had a real-time payments option for about six years, and they work for about 274 financial institutions. But this is going to be the big centralized uh, federal uh, instant payments network uh, going on in the U.S. Now, I know I've talked about this before on the Banker Midweek, uh, the strange political environment in the U.S., there were lots of sort of uh, crypto bros that seemed to think that this was a backdoor for the Federal Reserve to create a central bank digital currency. <laughs> Which, So why don't we leave that on the shelf right at the moment and just focus mm-hmm. on real-time payments and the U.S. entering the rest of the world. What do you think about that, <laughs> Roberta? We're getting real-time payments in the U.S. Yay! Woo-hoo. Yay! <laughs> and by the way, I heard you. I heard you on the uh, last week's uh, podcast with the tech. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was smiling uh, when you said that. Well, yeah, it's about time, right? Um, I would like to reference a uh, study which was published by the Federal Reserve Payments in 2022, Mm -hmm. um, where they stated that um, non-cash payments had increased 9.5% annually between 2018 and 2021, right? And in 2022, according to the Fed, 75% of consumers use mobile payment devices to send or receive payments. So um, across all ages, yeah, it, we're not talking mm. about, you know, Gen Z or millennials. We're talking about all ages. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's about time, right, that that we can we can use that kind of um, those rails which also and you know this very well have a very positive impact on businesses and cash flows of companies so on and so forth right so it's a bit, I think it's about time it's good excellent I read I'd read it was um, 
that uh, this uh, there there's a lot you know as I mentioned before that there's lots of sort of payment methods in in the U.S. But the thing mm-hmm. that this might eventually kill is uh, checks, which are still used quite widely in the, in US. the U.S. Yeah, I yes. was I was watching a, a new sitcom on Netflix, and the main character paid her rent check for a New York City apartment with a check. And I thought this show was made this year. It was very strange <laughs> to see this happening. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I, uh, I haven't used a check. I, I can't in, remember the last time I used a check. I think more than fifteen years ago. Did you learn how more to do it? Did you learn how to do them at school? Did you have a little? Did you have a teacher that showed you how to write out a check? I actually yes. <laughs> <laughs> We were still using the quill, by the way, <laughs> and dipping the quill in the ink, mm-hmm. um, you know, and not cars, but horses. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> no checks. I think last time was o- over 15 years ago, wow. over 15 years ago. Yeah. So the story, the story that I'm referencing right now is from um, the publication called Payments and in, in wonderful overwrought American fashion. It's comparing the launch of Fed Fed now to the Red Sox winning the World Series in 2004, which is the Boston baseball team, which had an 86-year drought to baseball, <laughs> making this an historic milestone in payments. My grandfather lived and died with the Boston Red Sox. I'm not sure he would be that excited about Fed now, but we'll move on to we'll move on from that. So we're coming back to the UK now, uh, staying in fintech. So everyone's favorite neo bank in the UK, Monzo. Uh, they they're just uh, they they made our top 1,000 uh, bank list this year, uh, and they've also reported a profit. And now they are in, reportedly in talks, according to Bloomberg, to take over uh, the Nordic neobank Lunar, um, which is a, a digital bank uh, in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. And I have to say, purchasing acquiring is my favorite form of global act of global expansion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's much easier to buy a local player than to just expand on your own as yeah. a, as a startup. What do you th- what do you think about this news that Monzo might buy Luna? I completely agree with you. Um, the best way to get into a new market is buy a local player mm. who has the uh, who has the market share has been through all of the um, uh, the processes to um, to establish, open the business, uh, market, da, 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 da. that's the best way to do it. It's uh, it's also quite safe, especially mm. when the other when you know the the, the party you you're acquiring is established. I mean, Luna apparently has six hundred fifty thousand customers yeah. across. Um, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. So it's uh, it's it's pretty sweet. Yeah. That's 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 a big that's a big chunk of yeah. uh, market share there. They they recently raised uh, thirty five million euros as as well earlier this, earlier this year. So they they seem to be in a very strong position. Very. So you know it seems like a very healthy choice, and I completely agree with you. The yeah. best way to to get into a market is. Is to buy, buy something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll have people celebrating exits all around if this happens, so we'll, we'll keep mm-hmm. on watching this. So our last story of the podcast isn't necessarily um, a financial services story, but I, I brought it up because it just seems so familiar. Um, Microsoft to face 
EU competition probe over teams and office bundling. So this is an investigation um, for sort of antitrust and, com and um, competition. Microsoft does this a lot where they bundle in all of mm -hmm. their products together and, and force you to uh, force you to use them. Maybe not in the same way Apple does, but that's what they do. Um, it's it's kind of made me feel like it was the 1990s all over again. People are surprised that that Microsoft would do this. Are you a Teams user, Roberta? Well, very much so mm -hmm. because uh, my company it came has, bundled. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. It came bundled. It came bundled. And by the way, in my previous um, in my previous job. Uh, we used to have another tool, but when COVID came out, it was Teams galore. Oh, oh wow. It became, yeah, Teams, 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 because the previous tool was not, uh, was not as secure. Apparently, yeah, okay. something. Yeah. It wasn't as good, uh, you know, uh, in quotation marks. Um, and, and we just transitioned to Teams uh, during COVID. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm very much a uh, a COVID user now, a team a teams <laughs> user because we're we're everything uh, Microsoft with Outlook etc. Mm. But yeah, unsurprising, right? I mean, you know, Slack got quite upset a yep. few years ago. Yep, yeah. they had a, a 2020 complaint in Brussels from rival Slack alleging that the bundling of the two services broke EU competition law. That's what Microsoft does, though. I suppose if it's more secure, you can see it seems like Teams is used by big organizations, and I know well the FT uses Slack, um, so and they're they're pretty uh, stringent on their IT, so maybe maybe Slack is as, as secure. Who knows? Maybe Slack is as secure, but it's just you know it comes in a package. It comes in a package, <laughs> exactly. Roberta, thank you so much for joining us. I want you to come back very, very soon. And I also want you to see you because we need a glass of wine. We need a glass of <laughs> or, wine. And or a whole thank bottle. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Now stay tuned uh, for this episode because next I'm going to sit down with the Bank of England's Victoria Clennon as we talk about payments, RTGS, and ISO 2022, so stay tuned. Lovely, and welcome back to The Banker Midweek. It's still myself, Liz Lumley, but joining me now is Victoria Cleland, Executive Director for Payments at the Bank of England, who's just walked over to the banker, the banker manor. Thank you very much, Victoria. It's a, it's a pleasure, and it wasn't raining. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. I know it has been raining for quite a Whenever it's Wimbledon, it rains, and then the sun, when it's over, the sun can come out. Um, so we're going to talk about payments, uh, the ever-modernizing payment rails. So why don't we start off a little bit with um, re real-time gross settlement systems and and what it means and what it means to make it fit for the future. Like, what does that mean? Yeah, so part of my role is running a real-time gross settlement system. And the real-time gross settlement system, it really is the sort of the beating heart of the financial system. In the UK, our RTGS system sees about £775 billion a day going across it, loads of payments. So it's absolutely crucial that that system keeps functioning and that people trust that system to function. Mm -hmm. So in terms of making it fit for the future, absolutely key is making sure that we continue to have that strong resilience that people know 
RTGS is always there. The current system was built in 1996. I often say to people, what kind of phone did you have in 1996? <laughs> what kind of technology did you have then? And I had a beeper. I don't... <laughs> oh. <laughs> How old I am. And so that's why we're sort of keen to renew it mm -hmm. from a sort of cyber perspective, using the latest technology to enhance resilience. But if you're going to enhance resilience, open heart surgery on the system, we thought, well, what more can we do? So mm -hmm. let's look at how we can promote competition and innovation in the payments landscape. And so there are a number of things that we're doing, sort of four core objectives in this big programme we're having at the moment to renew the system. One is resilience, mm -hmm. um, absolutely key to us as a central bank. Also, though, looking at how to increase access. Um, so in 2017, we changed our policy to allow non-bank payment service providers to join. We were the first G7 central bank to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but we're now making it actually easier for them to join the system. So onboarding will be easier. We're significantly increasing the capacity of the system so that we have a load more new players. Um, we're also looking at interoperability. So mm -hmm. how to enable our RTGS system to talk more to other RTGS systems or other payment systems, for example, new payment architecture um, when it comes in the UK, and also increasing user functionality. So there's tons of data in payments, how to enable um, the participants to make the use of that data, improving liquidity saving mechanisms that will save um, money for them. So really trying to think about what are industry wanting to do with payments, how can our system support that? Mm. No, it's very interesting. You know, I know you're talking, you're from the Bank of England and you're talking from a, a UK perspective, but it's all part of that sort of global payments ecosystem, you know, it, that when you mentioned interoperability and, and resilience. So I want to talk now about um, ISO 20022 that, you know, because you mentioned data and the rich data in payments and um, a lot of the improvements in cross-border payments are about transitioning to ISO 20022, which will provide much more access to, to, to all of that all of that rich data. How has the transition been so far? What what more needs to be done? So the sort of two things, you're absolutely right. It's really we need to think much, much more than we always used to about this global payment infrastructure. So many payments are cross border, about forty percent of the payments going through CHAPS, our high value payment system, are actually cross border. So we need to think about that size side of things. ISO twenty oh two two in its simplest form, it's like a language. And the more systems that can move to ISO 20022 so they can talk in this common language, the better it is. In the UK, we moved CHAPS, our high-value payment system, to ISO 20022 last month, so in mid-June. That transition went really smoothly. Um, we needed not just the Bank of England to be ready, but actually the um, 37 direct participants in the system they were already, some of them said it was boring, which I take is good. You <laughs> That's want good. A big That's transition good. Yeah. Um, to be good. So the UK chaps and participants, they are now talking the ISO language. Earlier this year, we saw the ECB move. Other countries such as Australia have moved. SWIFT have also moved. So what needs to happen? More countries need to adopt ISO. You get real network benefits from ISO. So the more... Um, countries that are talking that language the easier it will be to send payment cross-border to those systems but actually there's some real benefits domestically as well and the real benefits for individual firms so as you mentioned ISO brings a lot more data um, two benefits one is structured data so the way in which it is set out will become much more consistent across countries so you'll 
know what order will I be Cleland Victoria or Victoria Cleland you'll understand mm -hmm. that but also it enables a lot more data to go through and that will help individual firms for example with anti-money laundering checks it will improve straight through processing so mm -hmm. the real benefit for the firms and I kind of encourage them to get on and use it we haven't introduced ISO just for the fun of it it <laughs> is actually to deliver um, those benefits to individual firms but also those network effects you'll get cross-border payments mm. I mean we're in that we're in this period this coexistence period right at the moment and you mentioned the term you know uh, someone commented it was a bit boring which is actually in this in this context is is a good thing I mean is it has there been no drama during the coexistence phase like what are institutions ready or, or what more do they need to do to be ready yeah so in terms of the UK the direct participants in chats were already so we had a big transition weekend where come Monday morning they were all talking ISO language um, what they are doing is sort of they're all sending and receiving an ISO we're encouraging them not just to use the basics of ISO to, but to use more enriched data in ISO to fill in more of the fields so they can get the real benefits from that um, so they need to keep doing more of that it will be um, late this autumn though when SWIFT will be encouraging cross-border payments mm -hmm. to be using that enriched data and that's something that we'll be needing to do across country and also as time goes on we need the direct participants to work with their indirect participants for that extra leg of the chain to start talking ISO language um, and then in the UK in November 2024 we're going to mandate using some of these really important mm -hmm. fields and introducing things like the legal entity identifier for FI to FI transactions we mm -hmm. say you must do that so we'll be moving more to sort of um, mandate some of these elements of ISO and at the same time more and more countries are adopting ISO um, which then means we just need to make sure if they're adopting it they're adopting it in a consistent way mm -hmm. and there's a big piece of work there. Yeah, that's this. You know, it's a long journey, the ISO journey. But um, it is, but it's a really important <laughs> one. We're sort of great, great benefits. Mm. So you mentioned earlier the new payments architecture, which um, has been talked about in in the UK for a number of years. So when when Pay UK migrates uh, with with uh, with with NPA, both retail and wholesale payments in the UK will work on the same messaging format. Why is that important? Why, what's beneficial about that? So that brings a number of benefits. One, again, is sort of interoperability. So it would be much easier to link the NPA to CHAP. So if, for example, there was a problem with NPA and they needed to reroute payments for a couple of hours or something, it would be easier, much easier than it is now to send to CHAPs because they'd be using the same messages and the same languages. It also brings benefits for the institutions who are using them because it means they can talk ISO to NPA, they talk ISO to CHAP, so they can actually consolidate some of their own systems. And also it can bring benefits in terms of innovation. So new players who want to join, they may want to join, they, they only need to have one, one messaging standard to talk to the Bank of England and to pay.uk. And actually it's that same messaging system they'll be using internationally as well. So it takes away some of those sort of barriers to entry, which should be help competition and innovation so it may sound sort of quite technical ISO 2022 but actually the benefits to industry are very real and that's the payment industry and we've talked about some of that but actually with time it'll really benefit corporates as well they can use some of this enriched data I've heard 
about companies who say, oh, it'd be great because then I can use ISO and I can put the invoice number into the payment message. I can tie up exactly where that money's come from, which invoice. So I think there's some mm. real um, benefits out there. Interesting. So um, we all know payments is a global business. Um, and earlier on in the podcast, we discussed um, uh, my, myself and, and, and Roberta, the uh, launch of FedNow, uh, July 20th in the U.S., So, uh, which is the instant payments uh, network coming into the U.S. How does the Bank of England kind of work with other central bodies around the world for this ever-modernizing payments <laughs> ecosystem? Yeah, no, we work very closely um, in a number of different forums, so particularly with other central banks. We're sort of keen to share ideas, learn lessons from them. I mean, we've had exchanges with sort of teams in the Fed about what we're doing, how that impacts them. We spoke to um, the ECB. So I think there's a real desire to share information and, for example, in the cross-border roadmap, so G20 has made cross-border payments a real priority and there's a whole roadmap to enhance cross-border payment. Um, as part of that workload this year, we've introduced a new group called the Community of Practice, which is bringing central banks together to share ideas with each other. Um, and we're part of that. There's lots we can learn from other central banks. I mean, we've been talking about sort of extending the operating hours within our RTGS system. Some countries have already done that. What can we learn from them? They're keen to learn from us on access. And these sort of things can really enhance cross-border payments. So there's a really important sharing of ideas there. Sometimes the work needs to be a bit more purpose-fifth. So, for example, we're contributing some work with um, CPMI, so the Committee of Payment and Market Infrastructures, around ISO harmonisation. So making sure that when ISO is introduced, the messages are as similar as can be. In the UK, we've agreed with MPA a common credit message so we will be talking exactly the sort of same language and almost adding in the same grammar and things to it so to speak but working with central banks is key and it's not just with sort of the central banks we'll also work with sort of international infrastructure so SWIFT, CLS will be on a journey with them but increasingly on the cross-border work we need to involve the private sector as well the payments and um, so the central banks can change some of that core hard infrastructure we can make some changes to the soft infrastructure around sort of regulation and things but to really make a difference for the end consumer we need the um, private sector a to be benefiting from these changes in the public sector but also thinking about their own processes their own investment their own sort of charging structures and things and that's what will really change the dial mm -hmm. cross-border payments and make them sort of hopefully sort of faster cheaper more easy to access and more transparent <laughs> yep F fast cheap and secure that's what everyone wants payments to be victoria thank you so much for chatting with me i appreciate it thank you thank you for listening to the banker midweek part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at the banker available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix search on the banker podcasts to listen to more